Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of medicine, the best place to keep up with the literature and have the latest research spoon-fed to you through your earbuds. Now let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be covering this week. First off, why wait, they always say. Why not give epinephrine a little bit more often in pediatric cardiac arrest? After that, hypotensive trauma patients need blood, there's no mistaking that, but maybe there's a role for pressors nonetheless. Then from the third article, big boy management for toddlers fractures, just give them a cam boot. After that, we have the reason why our pediatric emergency medicine colleagues get sued. And then after that, to wrap it all up, we are taking into account sex-dependent anatomy in emergency airways. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which were brought to you by the underestimated Clay Smith. And now for the first article titled, The Effect of Epinephrine Dosing Intervals on the Outcomes from Pediatric In-Hospital Cardiac Arrests, out of the American Journal of Respirology and Critical Care Medicine. Just like in the adult ACLS algorithms, PALS calls for epinephrine dosing during CPR every 3-5 to five minutes. This is meant to augment your CPR by increasing diastolic blood pressure and flow through the coronaries during the arrest. Maybe if we gave it a little bit more often, it could in fact improve the action of epinephrine. I'd say it's worth a try. This was a retrospective study of 125 pediatric patients with in-hospital cardiac arrests in the ICU. A quarter of these patients had their epinephrine doses given at intervals of less than two minutes apart. The primary outcome was discharge with favorable neurological outcomes. This, of course, is one of my favorite outcomes because it's the ultimate patient-centered outcome and I like it a lot, even if this was just a retrospective study. Anyways, an increase in the frequency of epinephrine was actually associated in this study with better outcomes, an adjusted odds ratio of 2.56 favoring dosing less than two minutes apart. The diastolic blood pressure of the higher frequency group was actually higher by six millimeters of mercury after the second dose, and the arrest durations were shorter. This deserves a randomized trial, and I really hope that someone's already working on that. There could have been some confounders here, of course. Like, is the reason that it was dosed more quickly because things were going better, you had higher quality CPR, and more timely interventions? It's hard to say, but we could suss that out with a randomized control trial. In a spoonful, perhaps you would do well to err on the side of giving epinephrine more frequently rather than less frequently in cardiac arrests. Dosing in less than two-minute intervals was associated with better outcomes in this study. And then we have the second article titled Vasopressors in Trauma, a Never Event, out of the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. There has always been some controversy that while trauma patients are hypotensive, they shouldn't be given any vasopressors to help with that. The logic, of course, of course, makes sense. There's holes in the system, and so if you squeeze the system, you might just make them bleed out faster, and that's not going to help anybody. So vasopressors will never be the true solution. You need to replace all the blood that they've lost, and you need to control the bleeding. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no role for vasopressors at all. There's some nuance here, guys. These authors argued that there is a role for vasopressors in early resuscitation, but only after the holes have been patched and the volume's been restored. Only then, if hypotension persists, would vasopressors play a role. That might help us not overdo crystalloid boluses as well, and that would actually be a good plan. The authors were not trying to make the argument here that the epinephrine is needed because the patients were bleeding out all of their endogenous epinephrine and thus it need to be replaced, but they do make the point that there's likely a depletion of vasopressin and norepinephrine if there was prolonged shock. The authors back up their position with several retrospective studies and even a couple RCTs using vasopressin. 
It, now, it's pretty certain that in some specific cases, like traumatic brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, or vasodilation due to general anesthesia, that pressors would show a pretty clear benefit. But the authors argue that there may also be a nuanced role to play in other cases as well. Really, I think what these authors want you to take away from this is that they want you to not write off pressors altogether and know that you have that tool available to you if you need it. But be careful that just because you're holding a hammer, that doesn't mean that every problem is necessarily a nail. In a spoonful, it seems like if you're willing to accept a little bit of nuance, then maybe vasopressors aren't a total no-go in traumatic patients with hypotension. I've seen it done, actually, and it got them to the CT scanner and then to the OR without much trouble. So, you know, it has potential. Then the third article, titled Randomized Control Trial Comparing Immobilization in Above-the-Knee Plaster of Paris to Controlled Ankle Motion Boots in Undisplaced Pediatric Spiral Tibial Fractures out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now, we've covered the use of CAM boots before, CAM standing for Controlled Ankle Motion. And that was for the treatment of toddler's fractures as opposed to putting them in a cast. The data itself, the quality of the data, really wasn't great, though. The last study we covered included a few retrospective studies and one survey. Some higher quality data here would be really reassuring. And so that is what we've got for you today. This was an RCT with 87 patients aged 1 to 5 years old with a median age of 2 years old, who were randomized to get either a cam boot or a cast for their toddler's fracture. The primary outcome was ease of personal care. Now, it's not necessarily the most important factor to measure, but at least it's patient-oriented. And the cam boots actually were much easier to care for, they came out on top. To assess this, they use a validated score, which measures the parents' ease of dressing, bathing, diaper changes, things that patients need to do with their young ones every day. Also, the cam group had sooner weight-bearing compared to the casted group, without any differences in fracture healing or pressure source, which is good. Two patients were changed over from the boot group to the cast group. One had displacement that wasn't noticed at first and thus shouldn't have been in the boot group in the first place, and the other patient fell, had some pain, and then was changed over to a cast despite no change in their fracture alignment. At the end of the day, the boot sounds pretty good to me. In a spoonful, young children with toddler fractures who were randomized to get a cam boot rather than casting were easier to care for, they walked sooner, and still had good healing. And that brings us to the fourth article, Pediatric Malpractice Claims in the Emergency Department and Urgent Care Settings from 2001 to 2015, out of the Journal of Pediatric Emergency Care. No one likes to get sued, but it's something that many of us are forced to think about because it's just something that happens. Keeping in mind the most common reasons to be sued can help you not contribute to those statistics. In adults, the most common complaints to be sued for are chest pain, missed fractures, and appendicitis. What about in kids? This article was a retrospective review of 728 closed malpractice claims involving the emergency department over 15 years from a large malpractice insurer database. In 30% of the cases, there was a payment made and the claims averaged at about $320,000. The most common complaints that led to lawsuits were cardiac or cardiorespiratory arrests, appendicitis, or disorders of the male genital organs. Also high on the list was meningitis, encephalopathy, and missed fractures. The reasons that they were sued for most commonly were errors in diagnosis, but the suits with the highest payouts were from failures to admit or delays in admissions. It's not all dark news though, in the minority of cases that actually went before a judge, the physicians were favored 82% of the time, and overall, 62% of all the cases were dropped. 
I think that the take home message here is to be extra careful with some complaints, but know that there's a decent chance that you'll win out even if you are sued, presuming of course that you're trying your best and you have the patient's best interests at heart. It's still going to waste your time and be really stressful though, so prevention is key. In a spoonful in the pediatric emergency setting, you should show extra respect for patients coming in with cardiac arrest, abdominal pain that might be appendicitis, and testicular complaints. From the point of view of malpractice, it's better to err on the side of admission, but you know, think about your patient first. And so that brings us on to our final article titled, Emergency Front of Neck Airway Rescue via the Cricothyroid Membrane, a high-resolution computed tomography study of airway anatomy in adults out of the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. The nightmare of many ER docs is the infamous can't intubate, can't ventilate, and then having to at long last pull that elusive trigger on the much-talked-about but very infrequently done front of neck access. That's going to be either a needle or a surgical cricothyrotomy. These procedures are rare and they're intimidating. The more we know about the anatomy of the airway, the better it's going to go. Most simulation airways that I've practiced on have had a trachea that's parallel horizontal to the floor. But like, come on guys, is that really how it's going to be? I'm not sure. Let's scan some necks. This was a study of 50 patients, 30 men, and 20 women. Why they couldn't do half-half is beyond me. These patients were already getting CT chests, and then they consented to have those CTs extended up to the chin for the studies that we could take a look at their necks. Each had a towel placed under their neck to simulate the positioning that you might want to put them in when doing a crike. The major finding was that the angle of the trachea... From the head up high down to caudal lower, the angle was 25 degrees in men and 14 degrees in women. This means that if you're going to do a needle crike on these patients, you actually have to angle your needle quite a bit, like 45 to 60 degrees to get the best angle straight down the trachea. Also noteworthy was that the cricothyroid membrane was in the caudal half of every man's neck, and this was true for about half of women's. In a spoonful, the trachea doesn't lie flat just because your patient does. In a patient you might crike, you can expect the trachea to angle down by about 25 degrees in men and 14 degrees in women. And so that wraps us up. Let's do a quick review of all the five articles that we covered today. First off, dosing epinephrine in intervals less than two minutes apart was associated with better outcomes in in in-hospital pediatric arrests. Second, it won't be useful in all cases by any means, but there may be some cases where it would help to use pressors in the setting of hypotension in trauma patients. There's nuance involved here, so don't just write it off completely. Third, to boot or not to boot. For toddler's fractures, the evidence points towards booting, actually, and it helps that this was higher quality evidence this time. Evidence that showed that it was easier to care for a boot rather than a cast, and it allowed for sooner weight bearing. Then from the fourth article, the most common pediatric malpractice lawsuits were due to arrests, missed appendicitis, and disorders of the male genital organs. Have extra respect for these cases, and if you're really 50-50 on some things, then erring on the side of admission might be a little bit safer from the malpractice perspective. And finally, that brings us to the last article that showed that the cricothyroid membrane was lower than the midpoint of the neck in all men and half of the women scanned for this study. On top of that, the trachea seems to angle downwards into the bed as it goes downwards into the chest, more so in men at 25 degrees than in women at 14 degrees. 
And that wraps us up. So now then, you've earned them, we offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, where at the very same place you can sign up for our newsletter if you'd like to, and then get all of these spoon feeds through your emails every day of the week. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.